1: It's the Wonky Show. We'll chat university finances. Uh, We'll think about maintaining quality and standards in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, And the big admissions question as the moratorium on unconditionals continues.
2: It's all coming up. We are all obviously really worried about this this cohort of students whose dreams to start a university in September may well be um y- y- you know affected by what's gone on but then at the same time let's step back and think separately we're having discussions about the 100 year life and the fact that you know the fixation on sending everybody to university at 18 uh, as the be all end-all.
1: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson up in the attic and here to help us understand what's going on. As usual, we have a couple of excellent guests. Uh, In the West Midlands, Smita Jamdar is partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martino. Smita, your
2: reason to be cheerful this week? So my reason to be cheerful this week is um, I'm actually really enjoying spending lots of time with my sons, uh, one of whom is currently teaching me to play cricket. And I hit my first cover drive this week, so I'm... Well impressed with myself, frankly.
1: And in Bristol, Andrew Hargreaves is co-founder of Data HE. Andrew, your reason to be cheerful this week. Well, Jimmy,
3: truth, I've, I've got a few, but but uh, for fear of sounding philosophical, I've, I've got to call on, on nature and the weather. Because when I go for my daily walks, just seeing nature bring itself back to life with budding plants and and new birds uh, that that gives me a spring in my step and and helps me walk a little bit faster.
1: Excellent so yes we start this week with university finances now that the big issues in the emergency meetings are starting to fade away uh, thoughts are turning rapidly to budgets and cost savings and so on and so on. Andrew talk us through it.
3: Uh, Well, Jim, uh, as you rightly say, um, attention seems to be shifting from what what is that initial crisis around uh, what is a health crisis, essentially, to uh, the knock-on effects of this. And and actually, I wondered if it'd be just helpful to put put some things in context. Of course, we mustn't forget that before this very disruptive event, we were coming to the end of what's been a pretty long desert crossing for the sector in terms of of demand. We were about to enter a period of fertile recruitment, and that would offer some, some relief to the sector and then of course boom we get this enormous uh, disruption which is still largely uh, not understood. And and of course, throughout that that desert crossing, we've we've um, universities have, are coming out at the end of that in very very different uh, states of uh, financial health. Uh, some candidly, uh, although they might not feel that way to them, haven't really expended uh, any energy in that crossing. They're leaving in pretty good health. They haven't had to play any major strategic uh, uh, hands to get across. Whereas, of course, we're all too aware, and, and recent data shows us that that many uh, were already in a pretty precarious various uh, financial position with with huge uh, burdens on them. Uh, I think the other piece of context that's really interesting around this is that the sector is suddenly going to find itself uh, competing with what have uh, have been wholly private enterprise for government attention, sympathy, funding, and, and we all need to try and understand where HE sits in that hierarchy of, of priorities. And then uh, my final bit of context around this is is uh, is the government itself. I mean, only this morning uh, the government's had to announce direct funding from the Bank of England by, uh, by means of printing money. And uh, that's a clear sign that government doesn't believe it can Fund this extraordinary world through its traditional model of guilt, and so whilst we 're thinking about this financial landscape, of course most most leadership teams are uh, mindful of their own institution it 's got to be put against this backdrop of, of probably a financial landscape that we may never have experienced in our history. I mean I know people keep talking about comparisons with with the second world war but but actually this is a series of Extraordinary events, probably beyond those of of, of a wartime crisis.
1: Smita, are, obviously, most of the the, the the kind of focus, to to some extent, has been on, at least so far, international demand. You know, will it hold up? Will will students be allowed to come? Will they still come if they're allowed to come? What's your sense of where? You know, the kind of, you know, will we all be on planes again in August or? Uh, <laughs>
2: It seems extremely unlikely that that's going to be the case, doesn't it? I mean, I think, first of all, we don't really know what the position will be in terms of officially imposed travel restrictions from different parts of the world. We're already seeing worrying signs that some parts of Asia are seeing sort of second peaks. I read something about Singapore earlier. Um, So we don't know what the state of play will be for travel from those countries. But also we don't know what the psychology will be around people who, you know, are having to make decisions about either leaving their families or indeed allowing their children to leave, uh, to travel across the world to study without really knowing whether things have gone back to normal and things are going to be stable. And I can't imagine uh, many parents at the moment would be comfortable with the idea that they're young, you know, they're, they're adults, but they're young adult children, um, you know, would be several thousand miles away if another lockdown came in, for example. So there are just so many unknowns. And I, I think one of the challenges we've got with a lot of the conversations we're going to have during the course of this Uh, time is that we're trying to make medium term decisions at a time when even the immediate future is pretty unclear. So there's no stability on which you can then sort of predict and build and say, okay, we can now say in a few months time, the world will look like this. I I don't think we're there yet. So the idea of suddenly, you know, uh, all heading off, Across the world to to study does sound quite challenging right now.
1: And and Andrew, in terms of kind of you know university finances, provider finances, it's almost a year ago to the day that we got our you know OFS's first iteration of the financial sustainability of the sector report, and it said you know cut a long story short. Um, the sector wasn't at close to collapse, but lots and lots of providers had made very optimistic assumptions about recruitment. Now, <laughs> on the assumption that uh, a hell of a lot of those assumptions now look uh, very, very optimistic, you know, could it be that we end up with, you know, some providers getting very close to the edge or going over the edge over the summer?
3: Well, I, th- I think we've got to accept that that is a, uh, there's a high probability on that uh, eventuality coming to, to coming to the fore, because the, the maths just simply won't won't add up. Now, whether they're allowed to or whether there's an intervention, I think is a different question. But if if you were just simply looking at you know, balance sheet economics of income, expenditure, borrowing. The the, the 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 likeliness of, of of an institution just just sitting down and saying this doesn't add up, and whether or not their lenders, in their own constraints, have to take uh, a more uh, robust view of that. I think we've got to be realistic that, that that's going to happen in some circumstances. But as I say, I think there's a different question then about where does HE and those individual providers sit in that whole hierarchy of demand on the public purse? What willingness is there for, for intervention to pre- protect the diversity of the sector? So so that eventually might create some different responses. But as I say, I think we've got to be prepared for the idea that, that some institutions just simply cannot sustain their current uh, operation in the, in this environment that that seems a reasonable uh, assessment f- from my perspective
1: so let's look on the bright side right let's imagine that um universities can make some in-year very rapid very dramatic savings and kind of scrape by are there you know are there legal implications if a university starts suddenly significantly reducing its you know set of modules it offers or you know the hours its library opens or
2: well I mean I think that there clearly would be um there would be on the one hand the sort of um, legal consequences that flow from the individual relationship with the student and then there would also be a a regulatory question around whether by making those changes institutions are still complying with um, their conditions of registration Um, and I think the important thing uh, in in trying to, to navigate any of those changes is to keep coming back to how f- how far are you departing from what you promised? Um, there will be a temptation for institutions to think, well, we can just keep going as long as we actually, you know, completely alter everything we're providing that will help us survive the next few months. But from the student perspective or the regulatory perspective, that may mean you're so far adrift from what you promised that you're no longer really delivering the same, you know, uh, contractual promise or regulatory requirements. So there is that tension and that line to be um, struck. And I think, um, just picking up on a couple of Andrew's points that he made there, for me, the really important things in terms of the sector being able to position itself right to get government's attention here is something that I know you UK are already thinking about, which is how do you express the value of the sector in terms of what it can do for government in this recovery um, how it can help, you know, make sure people can access training and services to get the economy back on the um on the on, on the hopefully the straight and narrow um but also that uh institutions you know will need to look at their wider activities and try to make savings where they can i don't think there's any question that you can just um carry on as is and expect the, expect government to bail all that out so there will be some trade off between you know, getting that support from government and then how you make sure you're delivering everything as efficiently as you can. And it's just going to be an enormously complex legal Balancing act between all those different considerations and how they play out for individual students.
3: I mean, I think smita makes a really good point about the, the case for HE in this in this kind of hierarchy of demand, and and I think there is a case to be made actually about what you know what's the cost of somebody on on benefits or you know your, both the social and the economic cost of of our, you know, our nation's young people are not accessing uh, higher education compared to to the benefit that, that comes out of it. You know, what, what both what does it cost to bring somebody into HE, and then as well how that generates employment so i definitely think there's a case a case to be made and as, as smita said i'm aware that you are very clear that, that that's the narrative we've got to get across so we certainly shouldn't shouldn't just kind of accept this as a uh, you know just a tension that can't, can't be managed but but we will need to think very carefully about how we present that case to government and and, and essentially you know is it a compelling case against the backdrop of everything else uh, ministers and officials are having to deal with
1: I I'm really interested. I mean, either of you might have a view on this. I'm really interested in the stuff that has come out from government so far. So... Uh, Michelle Donelan, the new universities minister, certainly has been, you know, to some extent, very clear on her kind of Facebook Live appearances and so on that, you know, we, we this is business as usual. We we want students who are doing their A-levels to, you know, be able to go to university and so on and so on. How strong is that sort of, you know, that concern about students' future, students currently that are 16, 17, have their dreams of going to university? How strong is that in the kind of overall pitch here, do you think?
3: Well, if I, if I'm if I'm allowed to start and then I'm, I'm sure Smith will have more to add to this. I think it really, it really is important, actually, um, because we're talking about medium and, and long term. Uh, impacts on on society on just on just so many levels. So I'm I'm absolutely convinced that at this point it feels like an imperative, and it, and, and it strikes me as absolutely the right stall stall to set out. Um, but I, but I would add to that we don't yet really understand um, the scale uh, of the impact of these of these recent recent events. And 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 for fear of sounding a little bit um, kind of under a cloud and a, a doom monger, you know just simple things cross my mind like. We've never really experienced large-scale unemployment amongst middle classes in the south of England, where, where huge amounts of demand for HE come from. Now, you know, I might argue as a northerner, there's a bit more resilience in people from the north around some of those <laughs> characteristics. Certainly, a northerner of the 80s, um, but, but our society just hasn't experienced that level of anxiety. I was particularly, you know, tuned into Smita's point about you know the anxious parent of an international student. But let's not forget the anxious parent. Of, of a UK student who actually, you know, we suddenly may have mum and dad not working. Uh, and I do think, though, you know, the sector's got to stay alert to what's happening in the private sector. You know, I, I am a private entrepreneur and, and essentially that, that part of our economy is, is, has stopped. It's it's not a temporary delay. It's not that people are stopping, but it's just literally stopped overnight. And we don't yet understand how that's going to play out in the system. And we, we call these the big macro data points that we would just encourage universities to keep an eye on, because actually they can give us some signals, despite all the uncertainty about about the environment we're in. So um, I do, you know, I do think it's right that we talk about young people, their future, their prospects, and it, it's right that we set out that stall, But but we must do that, understanding that the climate around us could become very severe very quickly.
1: Yeah, and to meet what I was saying the other day, you know, if if we see. I know some people don't like it when I do this, but if we see international student recruitment as a type of kind of long term educational tourism, uh, even if we have a one-year dip and I think you know most people are predicting that that might be longer if you have a one-year dip that will be a big hit to local economies that are you know kind of depending to some extent on that money as much as universities themselves are in
2: fees. Oh absolutely I mean I think that as we all know from all the kind of um, economic impact assessments that have been done around universities generally so students generally uh, and also international students the the benefit to the, the wider local economies it, it is massive and all that will have a knock-on effect so if the you know if those economies suffer then as andrew said that consists often of local businesses who may have kids that were going to go to university and then parents are slightly anxious about um uh, you know how they're going to finance things like accommodation for example stuff where there's still a massive parental um subsidy uh tuition fees is one thing but you know there's there's money that needs to be found out of people's pockets as well and it may not be there um i mean for me there's there's a slightly perhaps longer term thing to think about, which is we are all obviously really worried about this this cohort of students whose dreams to start a university in September may well be, um, y- you know, affected by what's gone on. But then at the same time, let's step back and think separately, we're having discussions about the 100 year life and the fact that, you know, the fixation on sending everybody to university at 18 uh, as the be all and end all of their academic endeavours is probably not sensible in that context so even if we did need i I accept the financial issue is massive but if we could balance that against the fact that people might have to delay for a year surely we could find productive things for those people to be doing which benefit them more broadly than you know immediately going into into um uh, university uh as they were planning so i hope uh, subjects of the financial blow to he being managed in some way that the young people who find they can't go as planned there are other things that we could offer that they could be doing um maybe it's because i'm a you know middle-aged woman now but there were so many things i wish i'd done at 18 <laughs> rather than starting yeah. university so yeah, yeah. maybe we can find something productive out of this really really very awful set of circumstances
1: in, in my uh, in my gap year smita i traveled and worked yeah I travelled to Wolverhampton and worked in a shoe shop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, well, you were travelling from Walsall, <laughs> yeah, <I'm sorry. laughs> that was quite an expedition. <laughs> Great. Now,
1: let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
2: Hi, this is Kim Hackett. I'm the REST Director
1: at Research England. My article in Wonky this week takes a look at where we are with a revised timetable for the Research Excellence Framework since the exercise was put on hold. While we know the uncertainty uh, on timelines and dates is difficult to plan for, um, my piece explains uh, that we need clarity following the period of uncertainty, uh, wider uncertainty ahead before the right decisions on the exercise can be taken. In terms of the deadlines for the exercise, the wide deadlines for impacts and the end of the period for outputs, it's clear that there are a number of a number of principles that we need to embed in the revised framework and that this will need to involve discussion with the sector. So we'll be looking for input uh, soon hereafter. And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, just drop us an email on com with your idea and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, new guidance has been published this week by the Quality Assurance Agency, covering, oh uh, well, all sorts of things. Smita, tell us.
2: Okay, well, one of the things uh, that struck me about uh, the guidance actually was the sheer breadth of issues that it covers. So, we're talking about academic standards, student achievement, practice, and lab-based assessment, etc. Um, and it made me think about the actual breadth of issues that institutions are grappling with right now. Um, with this being only one, albeit an extremely important part of the student experience that they're trying to manage. So I just wanted to raise a sort of virtual glass to all those in universities and colleges and independent providers who are sort of working their socks off to try to adapt very complex operations to really quite extraordinarily different ways of working. So on the um, guidance itself, the areas that I think from, you know, I always look at these things, Jim, as you know, from a sort of legal perspective, because that's my Mindset. Uh, the things that I think are going to become very, very relevant and and, and potentially controversial in in the um, uh, future will be things around academic integrity. How are how is the academic integrity of assessments assured in this period? The no detriment policy is it actually no detriment? How's it how's it worked for students? Um, the relationship with PSRBs there are 250 of them I mean who knew yeah, um, yeah. courses that are sort of practical and lab-based where for obvious reasons the detriment to students will be much greater than something that you can you know very easily access online um, and similarly workplace learning so that was one thing you know I think it's a good a, a piece of guidance that really starts to put into sharp focus the things that are going to become you know issues in the near future and um, the second thing that struck me about it was really how it reflects the uh, complexity of the regulatory environment, because, of course, the OFS is issuing its own guidance on these very issues, and we're told there'll be more guidance coming on um, uh, credit modifications and things like that. And it's, that's not really how I expected the Higher Education and Research Act to operate when it set up a designated quality body and a principal regulator, but that is how it's panned out. So, complex regulatory environment. And then lastly, I suppose the question for me is to what extent will this guidance become the kind of benchmark of what's reasonable if people bring complaints and claims based on their experience, students I'm talking about here, um, uh, you know, their experience of education during this period? I mean, to what extent will the OIA and the courts say, if you followed the QAA guidance, um, then we will accept that that was a reasonable attempt to mitigate uh, the disruption. Um, so those were the kind of things that, stuck out for me from from what, what as i say is an extraordinarily uh broad piece of work by the q a a
1: and, uh, and uh, andrew you've uh you you've had a skim through uh the stuff um you know from a kind of from
3: from a, from a kind of non-technical perspective what's your what, what's your impression of the stuff you've seen well I, I mean i just want to pick up that that word that, that that's me to use really about about the notion of guidance i mean i i would you know having read it i thought well this is just if I was in a university, this is just welcome stuff, actually, because in all this uncertainty, anxiety, just having something helpful that sets out some parameters and gives some some best advice, I'm sure, um, not, not the people who have technical views about it, they must have given some reassurances to universities, and not least for the very reasons that Smeeta describes, if, if that gets tested later, can I at least demonstrate that I followed that public public document? I mean, again, I I'm also struck by somebody who doesn't work in a university and just that that range of issues uh, that, that uh universities are having having to manage, and these these are right at the heart of the very purpose of a university. These uh, these guidelines, um, and it was brought to life for me when I was actually privileged enough to have a one to one telephone call with a, with a vice chancellor yesterday, and, and you know, I just just inquired about what is it like trying to lead a university from your spare room, um, because of course we also can't ignore that universities are just so much about the place and the the living experience of of, of the physical. And again, you know the, the, these areas in this guidance t- touch right on that. Things like practical lab, lab teaching. How on earth do you do you do justice to that? Uh, again, you know the, the whole assessment piece. So I, I just thought it was a positive step. Uh, hard things to find in this this deep uncertainty of just providing a little bit of ballast uh, in these in these pretty uncertain times. So so yeah, as, as a as a external lay person, I was like that. This is sensible sensible stuff.
1: Smeeta, obviously none of this is ideal, and uh, you know it. It did strike me reading this guidance that there's a there's a hell of a lot of square pegs being nailed into round holes here for kind of obvious reasons. But I guess there's a difference, isn't there, between what a student might accept in the middle of an emergency and what a student might accept in two or three months' time, or even come. September. And I I, I wonder, you know, what about the courses and the students that just won't stretch and, and can't stretch unless the campus is physically open? And what happens if a student really is unhappy? You know, how much disruption and change uh, should they have to put up with?
2: Yeah, these are, I mean, absolutely excellent questions, Jim, which are undoubtedly going to be um, tested in some areas and I think it's it's really hard to answer them in the abstract because so much of it depends on exactly what's gone on but I think you can draw a distinction perhaps between students are already midway through a programme where really the option of just saying do you know what this is so far from what I thought it was going to be I don't want to do this anymore um, is um, is not really very attractive especially if you've already spent two maybe three years in some cases and you just you know you're going to have to finish based on whatever is available. Um, And so your priority then is really getting that qualification and finishing um, with those who, as we've talked about already, the ones who are starting in September, um, where they, you know, they may well look at it and say, do you know what, this isn't really what I wanted out of a university experience. And now is not the right time for me to start this. Um, And so I'm going to make the decision not to take my place up or, or, or decline my place. Now, um, what the consequences are in terms of, you know, obviously, if you're a student who decides you're not going to go to university, you won't incur the fees, uh, you won't inc- incur the accommodation expenses, etc. Um, so compensation is a very different concept there. And if actually what's happened is, you know, there there isn't anywhere you could go to do the course you wanted because, you know, whatever the external environment is won't support that. We can't have students back on campus, for example. Um, that's very different to an individual institution who's made very specific choices about changes to a course that are out of kilter with what others are doing, where those students may well be able to say, actually, do you know what? I've lost the chance now to go to an institution that's dealt with all this better and therefore, now I, I feel I've been disadvantaged by the fact I can no longer come to you. So really hard to give a general view. Um, but I do think that that big split between continuing students who probably have no choice, they're going to want to finish, that's their priority. And then they may well have questions over refunds of fees, etc. Against those who just look at what's now on offer and say, do you know, this isn't this wasn't what the brochure said. It's not what I want.
1: and and, and this is you know i mean this is a question i've been thinking about all all week andrew you know clearly if students and i'm talking about home students here if home students weren't paying fees and everything was being you know delivered by the state we could probably expect students to have to put up with quite a bit of disruption but given the whole thing is framed around them buying a thing um it becomes harder doesn't it to expect them to expect a whole ton of disruption
3: at least in the medium to long term Mm, i think that's right i mean the, the notion of kind of t- tolerance for compromise probably in all walks of life actually um are going to get tested you know it's that classic metaphor of how how far can we stretch this before starts before to it wear snaps. off does so, yeah. august yeah <laughs> um and you know, you, you can even feel that in your own private life about you know, you know you've got to do it um, but you're right, is this a fair transaction? Why is the psychological contract in this, let alone uh, the material contract? What does that do to my sense of connectivity, to my sense of value? And, and there's no question this, there is a, a financial transaction takes place. Now I've certainly in my time spoken to lots of students, some of them don't regard themselves as a customer or a, a purchaser of a, a HE service but some do and, and that, that latter group may well move faster on their idea of, is, is this contract in the broadest sense of the word being delivered against? And, and am I willing to, to compromise? I, I th- again, I think it's a realistic assumption to imagine that significant numbers might, might not think that represents the value for money that they were expecting.
1: Yeah, and and Smita, I, you know, I mean, I've got a feeling that, but maybe in five years' time, we'll look back at this suite of stuff from the QAA and think, you know, it, it it reads like everyone was in a fever dream because it's actually quite surreal if you take a step back and think, you know, the the, the the amount of stuff that people are doing to their academic regs and their student experiences and you know, replacements for years abroad and replacements for placements and so on. How much of this do you think will stick? In September, for example, or, or will, you know, is the, is the sector QAA and so on going to have to look again, you know, in a couple of months in terms of, you know, what we might have to do when we're in and out of social distancing, if we are.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the thing about reasonableness as a concept is that it is infinitely flexible and it, um, has made many lawyers very, very rich as a result because the, um, the, you know, what is reasonable has to reflect what's going on in the in the circumstances at the time. And so there is a massive difference between what's reasonable in the context of an emergency. You don't have much time. You can't plan. You're just having to do the very best. And the courts generally tend to give, you know, a fair amount of deference to that and say, fair enough, it was a dilemma. You did what you thought was possible. But the longer you've got to plan, the longer you've got to um, implement better mitigations, the more the court will say, well, this ceased to be reasonable at a particular point. Um, And that argument will be at what is that point? Um, And I suspect, you know, there will be some arguments over it, uh, both generally, in terms of, you know, QAA guidance, how does that evolve over time, but also specifically between institutions and their students, where students say, okay, we lived with that in the summer term, because we had no choice. But why is it still not fixed in September or why has a better arrangement not been reached by September? Um, yeah, definitely it's got to be kept under review and it will be. And I do, you know, just taking it on an absolutely human level for everybody involved, um, both from the institutional side and the student side, it will be exhausting because you're constantly having to Look again at things. Things you want just dealt with—they're not dealt with. They have to keep being looked at. They have to keep changing.
1: The things that you know—in some cases, you know, regulations and things that that genuinely haven't changed in decades yeah. <laughs> might have to change. Yeah, four, or uh, five yeah, times. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, from my point of view, they could all do with changing anyway because they—they generally—they <laughs> generally were written in a completely different time. Yeah, so, it, yeah. but this—but this would be the wrong time to try and do a wholesale review of regulations. Right now, we
1: know sort of the plan for how a levels will be replaced this year uh
3: because Ofqual has told us andrew explain yes that, that's right jim so um we've obviously had this climate of uh uncertainty around exams grades size of pool caps control choice uh, and we've been talking about it uh for for some weeks now um uh, and uh, Ofqual have, have helpfully announced their their plan uh, and uh, helped, in my view, to actually remove remove some of that uncertainty. It, they've given a direction of travel. That's not to say it hasn't uh, created uh, lots of questions and views, and of course, uh, motivated and, and mobilised uh, universities in thinking about how they uh, implement or what the implications uh, of that uh, that policy announcement. Uh, I mean, I think in truth, actually, what, what we've, we're all talking about under these these guises is back to that word word of anxiety. So, how do we uh, set out a, a policy and an approach that reduces anxiety for universities in what the future looks like, uh, and, and, and an attempt to reduce anxiety for those students who were expecting uh, to take to take an exam? Um, I would add, by the way, that I think we've got to be mindful that this um, this effort is is trying to do to do two things. One, it, it needs to award a grade to everyone who would have sat an exam uh, this year. And, and, and again, I just, just remind people that that's not always people in a school setting. You know, we've got to be mindful there'll be people in prisons, people in adult learning environments, people in FE, etc. who are taking uh, those equivalent uh, qualifications. So it's got to do that job. It just has to provide a grade for everybody. Uh, and as well, then it's, uh, for our own local issue, it's got to support decisions around uh, university admissions. And it's our view that that's where the nuance and And the balance between those two things needs to be managed uh, carefully. And actually, universities need to be allowed, in our view, uh, to use some of their uh, freedoms, autonomy and uh, skills and experience in managing admissions at a more local level because we're dealing with two very different uh, outcomes here. Interesting. Now, 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 now,
1: Andrew, of course, talks about uh, the autonomy in admissions decisions, and you know, a, a, actually, the other thing we've been kind of watching over the past few weeks has been OFS attempting to do its admissions review in uh, four times the speed in the middle of a pandemic. So, <laughs> when the moratorium on unconditional offer making comes off, you know, what's going to happen then? What's your prediction?
2: Well, I mean the. Uh, The the sort of autonomy over admissions decisions is something that's been nagging away at me for, you know, quite a few weeks now based around the interventions that the minister and the OFS had already made before the pandemic started, um, but also have now, you know, reinforced through the moratorium on offer making. And I just don't know how... I I kind of get the sense there's too much of a desire to centralise the approach to admissions and thus missing out on the opportunity slash risk, depending on which way you're looking at it, of institutions making those decisions themselves. And actually, uh, you know, just on a very practical level, we've already had clients contacting us and saying things like, well, you know, we've got courses here with capped numbers, externally capped numbers, medicine, dentistry, that sort of thing. Um, What happens if we end up with students who through this process, very many more of them meet the the grades Uh, than we had expected. We can't expand those numbers um, unilaterally. So what do we do with those students? So there are going to be lots and lots of issues, leaving aside all the special cases that Andrew mentioned about, you know, atypical A-level students, where something different is going to have to be done. Um, I do hope, however, that the sort of sector recognises that all individual institutions going off and scrambling and um, perhaps destabilising, even after the, the moratorium, destabilising the overall admission system is going to be bad for everyone. So we do need to strike that balance between centralised oversight of admissions, which terrifies me in a way uh, from OFS and the, the, the minister. The individual rights of institutions to determine their own admissions decisions, and then the impact on the sector if everybody pulls in different directions and creates a horrible mess around admissions. I don't know what the answer is.
3: <laughs> yeah, because Andrew, that sounds easier said than done to me. Yes, well, um, quite so. I mean, along with to me, to I, I am concerned about a centralisation of this because we've we've got people with you know huge amounts of experience and discipline, and and, and you know I have to say sometimes I do get a little bit perplexed about a narrative that I can see building as if, you know, kind of um, universities are characterless, thoughtless, you know, rampaging around uh, out of self-interest. You know, my experience of the sector is one that takes its duty pretty seriously. That's not to say that it doesn't have to balance that against its other other conflicts. So I, I do want us to be really careful in this notion that it's centre versus universities because like Smita, I'm actually convinced that, that the wealth of experience across those organisations is enough to create an environment for success and allow universities to make uh, local decisions, and and as you'll know, uh, Jim, we we at are, p- are pretty confident actually about the reliability of predicted grades overall. That you can model on the basis of the predictions that have already been submitted, that are already in the system, that they can be used as a good a good indicator. Um, and that, in fact, in all of this, we mustn't forget that the freedom of choice of students for some of the reasons we described earlier about the psychological contract, because in my view, one of the first things that would be a breach of that contract is you're not going to the place that you wanted to go to. And I think we should be careful that we don't uh, alienate huge swathes of potential HE entrants just because we've come up with a solution that looks good for universities, but not good for for the student themselves. And I don't believe it's beyond our creative skill to come up with a way that allows the traditional uh, CFCI model to do its business where we, we're clearly getting an expression of interest and determination from an applicant and then use that to, to size the pool and understand what that might mean for recruitment for local universities once they've exercised uh, their admissions process. Uh, and, and also just, just to add, uh, I think we get ourselves into a little bit of an iron triangle when we assume that fee income has to be purely locked down per head for, uh, in a model that we're used to that works in normal times. If we have to adapt the fee model to support uh, diversity and sustainability in the sector, I think we need to decouple the two things. Otherwise, we're going to come out with a solution that's trying to create an outcome when actually, if we decouple them, we can give ourselves a little bit more flexibility.
1: And actually, at least in theory, although it might not have been playing with very big numbers, OFS has already done a whole bunch of work preparing a- a- around that in terms of its uh, funding review and, you know, thinking about how to support particular objectives to its funding review. So maybe some of that can be dusted reapplied. off. But, but, mm. but, but, but Smita, this is, you know, on the one hand, some people, and, you know, I, I am one of them, in the in the first few days of the crisis, were talking about, you know, there needing to be kind of if you like, less marketisation in order to avoid some institutions scooping up in, in, incredible numbers of home undergrads and, and destabilising others. But I guess the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot is at what point between now and September is it going to look OK for that usual sort of clearing and adjustment period to appear, where there are all those adverts and all those supplements and, you know, <laughs> all those what Nicola Dandridge have called, has called inducements to, you know, come to university. There's, that that surely at any point he's going to look really problematic that that kind of usual advertising and uh, uh, around the market
2: well it certainly is if if institutions don't know that they've got the freedom to deliver the places that they're seeking to recruit people to so it surely has to flow from whatever the overall um, proposal is to manage admissions um you know if, if in reality there are student number caps how are those implemented you know is it um is there any flexibility for institutions within those we assume there will be um and so i'm sure that at that point of you know, there'll be some attempt to recruit to whatever cap you're given, but clearing seems like again a you know, a, a mythical fantasy, unicorn like in its um, <laughs> in its sort of a, a probability at this stage. Um, I, I, I just don't know, um, and it's a horrible feeling because you kind of you want to know because you want to be reassuring people, but I don't think anybody knows really how all that's going to play out, and it's only a couple of months away, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and 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 just back on the, this admissions question, Andrew, do you? Do you uh, we have se- we we've seen Michelle Donelan uh, um, over the past couple of days. Can, can at least in theory suggest that. Uh, people would get their results if they chose to resit. You know, this group of students who actually want to choose to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, do this in the autumn rather than just get this, um, you know, kind of calculated, quasi-predicted grade. They'd get those results before Christmas. Now, I'm I'm not actually convinced that that's possible, but, um, you know, is that what's that about? Is that is that assuming there's going to be a kind of big January intake? Do you think? Uh,
3: well, well, no. I I actually wonder if it doesn't speak back to this to this anxiety question that if you've got. You know, a group of, of, of students who are expressing a frustration about their inability to actually sit the exam, and you know, I've I've, I've worked for that. It sounds like to me like a simple practical offering that says, "Listen, if you want to do that, you can. Um, no, nobody's going to stop stop you doing it if the if the if all of the factors, the environment, the ability to bring people together allow." So I'm not I'm not sure that it's actually about some great big strategic wave event. I think it's simply about we need to try and keep people on side and, and answer their their questions. I mean, I, mean, I have to say, if, if, I, if I was an individual, other than short of the motivation of loving doing, loving doing exams or believing I'd have a very different outcome, I don't know why I would, because it, it may differentiate me from the large swathes of the cohort, when in fact, the, you know, this idea of comparing an awarded grade compared to an exam awarded grade it's kind of a bit of a bit of a phantom because the truth is there are no exams this year in the in the normal system and so our new model is this uh, teacher-led awarded grade model so you know, I wonder if, if 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 I personally would would choose to do that. Although, as I say, I can understand some people may feel they want a, a genuine. Um, I mean, not least, I, I was kind of anticipating when years to come, some of this cohort come out into the workplace, and, and somebody says, "Oh, you're you're from the the 2020 cohort, then the the, the great gifted." You know what what how will that play out with employers and, and likes like me too. I don't know the answer to that but there's no question this group are going to have a feature of them that is different to, 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 to any people that have been either side of them in in the education system so um, it, it, I can kind of understand the motive but I wondered if I would do it I'd probably not want to um, stand out from the crowd really so that's about it for this week to find out more about anything we've discussed
1: today you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically just search for the wonky show on your favorite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Smita and Andrew, everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen, and of course to you for listening. Uh, Until after Easter, stay wonky. Hold up.